Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is an RNZ podcast. Hello and welcome to the Podcast Hour. I'm Richard Scott. With more than 600,000 podcasts out there to choose from, there's so much to listen to, but so little time. And how can you tell which ones are any good? So each week I discover some of the best audio stories from all over the world and share them with you. Coming up today, a post-mortem is conducted on a notorious local contribution to Entertainment's Hall of Shame. Break out the swimsuit. Bay of Islands, here I come. With you and Fiona in swimsuits, don't you mean the Bay of Pigs? Sorry. The worst sitcom ever made picks over the 90s TV flop Melody Rules and tries to work out where it all went wrong. Then Tom Jackson's a postcard fanatic with a collection of about 60,000 of them boxed up in his garage. His show, Podcast from the Past, uses postcards as a springboard into stories. The key disjunction on a postcard is, is the front of it, the picture, is mass-produced and frequently idealised. Um, that has to sell to thousands of people. But the message on the back is unique and personal, and that reflects your real experience. Plus a hidden history of brushes and brushing. I love sweeping very much. Because it makes me happy and I like keeping everywhere neat. In the American South, in the absence of legal recognition of marriage, couples in slavery jumped the broomstick. Finally, Over My Dead Body tells the story of a picture-perfect couple whose relationship ends in murder. And next time you hear something good, please do let me know about it. Pods at rnz.co.nz is the email address. And on Twitter, we're at RNZ Podcast Hour. I missed the whole Melody Rules experience first time around. And by the sound of things, I might have dodged a bullet. This homegrown comedy that came out on TV3 in the 1990s has been panned as one of the worst sitcoms ever made. The critics called it cringeworthy, atrocious, awful and a disaster in reviews. And the whole experience was so traumatic that some actors fled overseas to escape the embarrassment. Now Melody Rules gets a post-mortem 25 years on with one of the show's original writers. Jeff Houtman's tracked down dozens of the cast and crew to find out where it all went wrong and how the failures affected them since. The whole story started off at a comedy writers' workshop in Auckland. A group of 120 budding writers rocked up and paid to listen to a visiting American expert and do some writing workshops. Their mission? Simple. Just write the great New Zealand sitcom. And just in case that task seemed far too easy the organisers threw in a plot twist, a survivor-style elimination contest between the writers. 
Over the first week, we worked really hard. It was a crash course in sitcom creation. But there was more to this seminar than just learning. There was competition, too. And at the end of the first week... They did the first cull, which took it down to 20. Jack Tweedy again. And I remember they said they were going to call at 4 o'clock on Saturday afternoon. And I remember I was living in a house in, in Upper Queen Street that isn't there anymore, a little old house, sitting next to the, the flat phone, waiting to see if it would ring. And at one minute past four it rang, and I thought, they're either ringing to tell me no or ringing to tell me yes. And and I picked it up, and, and they said, you're in. And I was the first one that they called, I think. Oh, teacher's pet. Well, yeah. Matthew Donaldson. I got a... A call on my birthday saying... On your 17th birthday. On my 17th birthday. (laughs) Saying, hey, welcome to the club. We want to take a bet on you. And I jumped up and down and couldn't stop smiling and I hugged my mum and she said, I'll do whatever it takes to help you you get where you're going. Luckily, or maybe unluckily, I made it through the first cull and so did my future writing partner, Mihira. And really, to my surprise got invited to come for the um, more in-depth course and that whittled down the numbers down a bit more, yeah. In a Jonestown kind of way of thinking, it was the point where people were going, well, I worked 14 hours in the garden, how many hours did you work? And Well, I worked 16 hours in the garden, well, I haven't slept for three weeks, so I must really want the new future to be coming kind of yes. thing. So we were already at that stage two weeks in. Bodies all lined up on the ground sort of thing. Yep. We were put together as a writing team because... Why? Did we annoy someone? (laughs) I had a feeling that we were like the bad kids and they chucked us together. Does that sound right? I think it might have been because we were the craziest. Okay, that could have been it. That could have been it. That could have been it. Right, we were the problem children. (laughs) Glue us together and that way you can kick us both out at once, right? (laughs) But that didn't happen. No, that didn't happen. It all sounds so lovely at this point. I don't know how. What it all got on? so tragic. <laughs> 120 people were whittled down to 20 people. And they're going, keep coming up with a premise, keep coming up with the characters, do the outlines. Then I was paired up with the youngest guy who was involved, um, and I can't even remember his name. I want to say maybe it was another Jeff or maybe it was a... What if I said Matt? Oh, Matt. Little wee Matt. And, like, he was, like, 17 or 18 years old. After the massacre that was week two, we were finally down to our core writing group, the group that would eventually go on to staff the chosen sitcom. And it was now our job to come up with the incredible idea that would become the great New Zealand sitcom. I came up with an idea of what if... An older sister was left in charge of a family because mum and dad had gone overseas to find themselves under a rock. Kate Ward-Smythe. So I came up with that because growing up in Nelson, mum and dad did get very involved in counterculture, like the Values Party. They had a lot of things that they were focusing on, very worthy causes. And it was a great, just totally immersive environment to grow up in. That's how the premise came about for me. It was, I often felt like I'd sort of raised myself and and, and was my own adult um, growing up. So that was the kernel of the idea. But Kate's writing partner, the 17-year-old Matt, remembers things a little differently. 
there are contrary points of view as to the origins of of this, but uh, from from my perspective, it was uh, based on an idea that I had. Mm-hmm. Um, but we worked together and developed yep. together. And what was the idea? Uh, the idea was that there was a a boy. Um, maybe about sixteen or seventeen, hmm. who <laughs> handy, yeah, whose uh, whose mother had to be absent, and the older sister who had just moved out of home, the task fell to her to look after her her younger brother, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, that happened in my life. And it was this idea of Kate and Matt's that's the reason I'm here today, doing this podcast, sifting through the ashes. It was their kernel of an idea that would go on to become the worst sitcom ever made. And we named it Melody Rules. I'm in charge here. For the next five and three quarter hours, Melody Rules. Break out the swimsuit. Bay of Islands, here I come. With you and Fiona in swimsuits, don't you mean the Bay of Peaks? Sorry. Susan Hamilton kept throwing bits of paper at me. (laughs) We all know what that means. She thought you were a rubbish bin. (laughs) Great, then we can go upstairs and practice our abseiling. Monster! You're decent. Speaking of horror stories. The training, the whole development process and the kind of reality show stripping out of different casts and people as, as the group got smaller and smaller... The training was spot on. Dave Horn. It is flawless. It really is. Like teaching the elements of character design, script design, story arc, how it works with network programming. Um, it really is sitcom training that is that is valuable and portable to different types of media. So, you know, the questions that have to be asked is, okay, if the training was fantastic, what the <laughs> f*** happened? Yeah. But we're all so willing. It was like you know, no one was questioning the very core of the process and how wrong and clinical the process was and how much it was a bad fit with us as a nation, as a culture. There wasn't any way to counter the way it was going because there was a cull coming up. You know what I mean? There was a, yeah. it gets chopped from 20 to 16 to 12 to 10. And it's like a, a reality show before there were reality shows. Yeah, as I said before, you're jumping through the hoops. Yeah, yeah. And if you can make it through the hoop, you're yeah. just looking forward to that next hoop. Yeah. And exactly. And we were like a whole lot of kids with our faces pressed up against the sweet shop. We were on the outside and we wanted to get in. We wanted a career. We wanted to make a difference. Magic Tallyland. Magic Tallyland. Even this early on in the process, there was a dichotomy. Because Dave Horn is right. The training was excellent. We all learned so much. But, like Kate said, everything we learned was about writing an American sitcom. We all know that if you want to succeed, you have to train. Practice makes perfect, right? But what if all of your training, all of that practice, doesn't fit the end goal? You can play tennis every day of your life, but that's not going to make you a world champion at squash. So, is this where our failure started? Were we just training for the wrong game? Regardless, I really loved this seminar. It really did feel like something was happening. We were excited and giddy. It was like there was something in the water. And actually, well, there was something in the water. We found out a few weeks after that we'd been through this two-week seminar that the water in in the place was tainted with giardia. 
and about a third of the people who were there, so that was like a hundred or so people, came down with Giardia. Giardia. (laughs) The worst sitcom ever made, presented by Jeff Houtman and produced for RNZ by The Download Concept and Glynis Stewart. And you can hear that first episode on nights on RNZ just after the 9pm news on Wednesdays, starting this coming Wednesday, 13th of March for the next eight weeks or at rnz.co.nz if you go to the podcasts and series page or just search for The Worst Sitcom Ever Made. Remember the good old picture postcard? Are you still getting or sending any? Because before likes and retweets and endorsements, the postcard was the cheap and easy way to let someone know that you were thinking of them, that you cared. Even though postcards have become a bit of an endangered species in the age of emails, texts, WhatsApp, Snapchat and all the other kinds of instant messaging, they're still far from extinct. Tom Jackson got into them more than 25 years ago, and since then he's built up a massive collection of tens of thousands of cards. He's written a book and also started up a popular Twitter account, at Pass Postcard, that now has more than 67,000 followers. Tom tweets a picture of the front of the postcard along with a sentence off the back. The effect can be quite funny and sometimes quite jarring, with a tacky image on the front clashing with what's been written. In his show, Podcast from the Past, he also uses the postcard as a springboard into stories. Two guests bring some favourite postcards into the studio. Tom does the same and they talk about what they mean and why they were sent. I'll speak to Tom in just a moment, but here's some of it to give you a taste. From Postcard from the Past and Wardour Studios, this is Podcast from the Past, the programme that explores the messages and meanings of old postcards. Each time on this programme, my guests bring in postcards that for some reason they couldn't bear to throw away, and we find out exactly why they decided to hold on to them and just what those cards mean to them. I'm Tom Jackson, and my guests today are Sasha Dugdale and Samuel West. Sasha and Sam, I'm delighted that you're here. Thank you for asking us. Sasha Dugdale is a poet, a playwright and a translator. From 1995 to 2000, she worked for the British Council in Russia and she was until very recently the editor of Modern Poetry and Translation. Her latest collection is Joy, which contains the poem of the same name, uh, a monologue in the voice of William Blake's wife, Catherine, exploring the creative partnership between the artist and his wife. And Joy received the 2016 Forward Prize for Best Single Poem. The judges called it an extraordinarily sustained, visionary piece of writing. Sasha arrives today with a Sussex postmark. Sasha, are you still a sender of postcards? Yes, definitely. I love writing postcards and I love writing long letters and keeping correspondences going. seems like the least you can do in the face of digital technology, really. So you don't get put off by the process of having to find the card, remember the address, get the stamp? No, no, quite the opposite. I love the mechanics of it. That's something that really appeals. I like taking it to the post office. I like handing it over rather than just dropping it into a post box. It's, there's something also about the dealings in the post office with the, the post office clerk that's really magical as well. Excellent. Well, I'm, glad, I'm delighted to hear that. Samuel West is an actor and director. He starred in plays including Hamlet, Arcadia, Enron and Betrayal. In films such as Van Helsing, Notting Hill and the film of Howard's End, and he gained a new audience when he appeared as Frank Edwards in Mr. Selfridge. 
He was artistic director of Sheffield Theatres from 2005 to 2007, and he is the chair of the National Campaign for the Arts, campaigning for an increase in arts funding. He also spends a fair amount of time in rooms not unlike this one as an in-demand voice for television narration on the radio and for often very lengthy audiobooks. Sam, of course, comes from a family with a well-known history in acting, being the son of Timothy West and Prunella Scales. Sam arrives with a postmark from south-west London. Yep, Wandsworth. <laughs> wonderful Wandsworth, brighter borough. <laughs> Sam, when did you last send a postcard? Uh, yesterday. Did you? To Tunisia. Very good. Can we hear more? Yeah, it was the first one we've had to send as part of the post-crossing project, uh, which is something I do with my daughter. And uh, I think Tunisia is uh, the 54th country we've either written to or received postcards from in two and a half years. Now, for those who don't know, and I think a lot of people are very familiar with post-crossing, how, what's the mechanics of this and what's the, what's the philosophy behind it? Um, well, it's a postcard exchange uh, project that works through a website but in- involves the true exchange of real postcards. Basically, you sign up and you give them a little profile and your address, but your address is only known to the people who write to you one at a time, so it's very safe. And you say, I want to send a postcard to somebody. And you click on a, a, a button and somebody's name comes up and it's Klaus in Innsbruck and Klaus says I really like trains so you look in your trains trains, for instance you look in your enormous collection of postcards that you (laughs) haven't yet sent to anybody and find a nice train and then you find a nice stamp and then you write to Klaus and you say hello and I write on behalf of my daughter who is only three so she's not big enough to write her own cards yet but I draw around her hand and I say (laughs) we send away from London and then you put a number on it And when Klaus gets the card, he enters the number into the website and you get a little note saying, your postcard to Klaus arrived. And then maybe you get a little note from Klaus saying, I did like that train, thank you so much. And that is the end of your relationship with Klaus. It's like... So there won't be a repeat with Klaus? No, no, you just have... It's like having a pen friend, but you only have to have one postcard's worth of things to say to each other. I mean, he can write (laughs) back if he wants to, and sometimes people do. But basically then, because you've written to Klaus successfully, you get a card back from someone else in the world, but you don't know who that is. It won't be Klaus from Innsbruck. And... Instead of putting my return address, I put my daughter's address. And in two and a half years, she's had coming up for 350 cards. Wow. Uh, So she gets her own post basically twice a week. We used to put flags in a little, in in an enormous map of the world, but there are now so many that I can't (laughs) keep up. So now we just put a flag in when a new country is, is, so we put one into Tunisia this week. It's an open-hearted thing, isn't it? It's very good. Yeah, agreed. That's a very good description. Well, you've—I can see that you've. I mean, I know you're a postcard collector, Sam, and you've also you're, you're weaving postcards into your family's life, which is fascinating. Sasha, I have this theory that postcards actually touch all of us more than perhaps we realise. Actually, I know in the room today we're all converts, but Sasha, is there some connection between the precision, the selection of words that a poet has to make? And postcards, which obviously have a limited space to write your message. Can you see a parallel there or am I uh, imagining it? I think that there's something about the size of a postcard and the reduction that you have to make when you're writing a postcard that makes you go for the absolute essential. And quite often, you know, you read a postcard and it's, it's all pretty meaningless, but sometimes there's something about the amount of space you've got which makes you write 
exactly what you think or feel or something entirely whimsical that somehow maybe subconsciously expresses something that you couldn't have got to if you'd written a letter or if you'd talked to someone for three hours. So there is something that's similar to poetry in that respect and it's, it's, a, it's a formal quality, I think. But then the other, I suppose, the downside of that is if, um, as a poet, you weigh your words. Do you sit staring at the blank postcard, <laughs> concerned that this has to... You can't use a cliché. So how do you, do you feel a bit of a pressure? The best poetry that I've written has come utterly unbidden. It hasn't come because I've sat there looking at a page. It's come because it's wanted to come. And sometimes it comes because there's a space for it, and a postcard is a space. So it, it's a, And it is a chink in your life. So there's, yes, I mean, there's something about that, the freedom just to, just that small space. It's like a game almost, and games are fantastically good ways to express yourself. Well, before we inspect the cards that my guests have very kindly brought along, I'm going to kick things off with a couple of cards that I've got in the postcard from the past style. The first is a card of Malmesbury Abbey in Wiltshire, a ruin, I think, really. Um, a nice old card, actually, from 1967. Uh, three wonderful old, uh, blue stamps there, penny each. And it's the message reads, We had four bull calves shot yesterday. <laughs> we caught four rats. One yesterday, five today. The dog killed them all on the farm. There's a sort of exquisite contrast between the flat religiosity of the card <laughs> and the violence of the message. And, also, and miscounting the rats. It doesn't... Yeah, the numbers don't make sense. Not at all. And, you know, if it was a conversation, you'd go back and say, but that doesn't add... Just they're gone. They can't talk to them. <laughs> Who are they? No, no idea. Yeah, so, um, yeah, uh, rat killing. I've never sent a card with rat killing, but, you know... I used to keep rats. I'm very sad. I've had five rats in my life, but I certainly wouldn't want the dog going after them. No, one after the other. Dear, dear. Uh, 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 Yeah, dreadful, dreadful. The shooting of the calves is obviously newsworthy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess if you're a... Uh, I, yeah. It's better not to ask. Better not to ask. Anyway, that was sent by someone called Mel. And it's such a lovely message. Six kisses at the end. You know, one for each rat and then one for luck. There's a whole novel in that postcard, isn't there? It's just... You can write it. <laughs> Sasha Dugdale and Samuel West on Podcast from the Past. And the show's host, Tom Jackson, told me about his postcard collection and how he finds his guests. When my guests come in, they bring with them postcards that they've held on to for whatever reason. They might have received them through the post, they might have bought them somewhere, they might have found them in a second-hand shop. And I want to know the story, why they've held on to them. And really, for us, the postcards in the podcast, they're little trampolines that take us into stories. I always say, if the programme is going really well... We don't even talk too much about postcards because they've done their job. They've taken us off into some other stories. And what's the size of your own postcard collection? I mean, does it, does it run into thousands? I mean, how big is it? You use the word collection. I think that's a very a sophisticated word, really, for <laughs> something that is more of a hoard. I mean, I, I have a, a collection of, 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 of kind of quite nice cards, or what I consider nice cards, cards, cards that are kind of organised. But beyond that, I have this kind of huge, slightly amorphous archive of cards that are for the Twitter, for the book, for the podcast. And that probably runs into something like 50 or 60,000. Wow. Lots and lots of boxes. Where do you keep them all? Well, they are meant to be in the garage, 
uh, but they find a way of creeping into the house because I'm always going through boxes looking at things or looking for things or trying to sift through them for a particular card or a particular kind of card. So there's a sense of uh, a lucky dip. I put my hand into a box of cards and see what comes out. And for me, that's actually the pleasure of it. I, I never know what I'm going to find when I get a, a box of cards. and I look in it and I'll see a message that is funny or sweet or emotional. And that's like that person talking to me from 40 years ago. And I've had that I'm really privileged to have that little insight into their life at that moment. And I love that. That's, I'm addicted to that, really. It's, it's just fascinating. The message is very simple. It's like a sort of news report directly from the holiday from Margaret in 1976, July. Hot summer, as you remember. Oh. And it says, um, there is a horrible big bee in our tent and won't get out. So there you are. That was going on while she was writing it, obviously. Yeah, news just in. Exactly. <laughs> and in fact, you know, the handwriting's pretty stable considering she's being threatened by this large bee. There was a lovely sense that you get as well it's of, of history and how we look at the history books now and you have this sense of these big events in the past and how important they were. And then the postcard, you know, it almost deflates that sometimes, doesn't it? Because you have these lovely comments of... I, I can remember one about them, um, Neil Armstrong on the moon and the people had gone to sleep or something and had missed the entire thing. Yeah, that was a great card. <laughs> that, and exactly right. They'd, they'd, they'd set their alarm to get up and watch this late-night broadcast of Man Landing on the Moon, and I think that was probably the latest television had even run up to that point. Normally it switched off at midnight or half 11 or something. So they'd set the alarm, but they overslept. And I think that it, that is kind of insightful into how we actually experience history. History can, can... When you read the history books, it looks like it's all newspaper headlines, but actually we, we don't live our lives in the headlines. We live our lives in, in, in the erratum slips and the, and the errors and the footnotes, and, and that's what our real lives are. And there can sometimes be quite a jarring disconnect that I listened to and I enjoyed on, on your show sometimes between the kind of image, often quite kitschy image, on the front of the card and the comment on the back of it. Absolutely. Well, the key disjunction on a postcard is, is the front of it, the picture, is mass-produced and frequently idealised. Um, that has to sell to thousands of people. But the message on the back is unique and personal, and that reflects your real experience. So you might have a, a, um, an airbrushed blue sky on the front, but the message on the background might be telling you about it, how it's rained for five days solidly. <laughs> And I think we're all probably familiar. I kept finding myself nodding my head as you as you and your guests were like making these little remarks about how big your writing is at the beginning of the postcard dictates how much you can fit in. And we've probably all had those experiences of trying either to, to write really big so it's kind of a distant relative, we haven't got much to say, or writing really, really small and trying to f squeeze an inordinate amount into this you know, completely impractical space. I think that's right. And I think um, it's a bit like making a phone call to someone. You know, there are people who are awkward to talk to and you're, you're, you're fearful of long silences and there are people with whom the conversation flows. And I think it's the same. It's, um, I mean, I have quite small handwriting, but uh, on some postcards I'll try and start quite large so that uh, I don't have to get too many words in. Some people agonise over, what shall I put on this postcard? Just say where we are, what it's like, and uh, send love. There we go, that'll do. Yes, and uh, you'll find writing about the weather at some length is yeah. uh, fairly customary. <laughs> weather, food, location, 
Lots of love. See you soon. Bye-bye. How do you find your guests? Because they're, they're a they're great cross-section of people from, from all kinds of, of areas of the entertainment world and history and poets. And how do you... Because presumably they have all expressed some interest in postcards. How do you find them? All my guests really are people who have interacted on the Twitter Twitter, as you probably know, is, is quite a wordy medium, wordy piece of social media. It tends to attract people who like to use words. And a lot of journalists, comedians, other writers, novelists kind of latched onto what I was doing on Twitter quite quickly. And I spotted that there were some interesting names, people I, I would never dream of uh, contacting or I'd, I never thought I'd meet. And so when the podcast came along, I thought, well, why don't I dig into this resource of interesting people and see if they'd come along. And, and really amazingly, a lot of them said yes. So suddenly I've got people I really admire, comedians and writers and, and, and poets and actors, chatting about postcards with me, which I thought no one would be interested in. But, um, you know, we all have more in common than we realise, perhaps. And how do you decide which guests to, to team up with who? Because that, there must be a bit of an art to that as well, making sure that it, you know, they're all kind of compatible and the conversation flows, or is that just luck? I, th- I think it's a it's a bit of a feel, you know. Of course, it's about who's available on what day. We yeah. can't deny that. But I think you start try and think who's going to match uh, with whom. Because after all, for me, the, the best programs are the ones where, obviously, I'm kind of running the show and kind of give it some structure. But when the guests interact with each other and it becomes more of a, a conversation between us all, that's really where it tends to take off. And also, that's where it takes you in directions I didn't expect, which is wonderful. Coldplay have the best rider I'd ever heard, which is that as part of their post-show thing, along with the food and the alcohol, they ask for four stamped local postcard views that they can just go, hello, we're here, and run away. And That's brilliant. It's wonderful, brilliant. isn't it? It's so simple. And a surprising number of them sound like they are still sending postcards to this day, as I, as I guess you are too. I send postcards, definitely. I mean, I was a little bit surprised when this whole project started, that postcard sending had died out to the extent that it had, because I never stopped. I think perhaps I kind of didn't notice. But yes, I think I think writers certainly get postcards. Postcards are used to promote books. So writers have postcards knocking around. Actors, I think, often send postcards, little good lucks and thank yous. It's a cheap civilised, nice way to, to keep in touch with people. So I think it may be that my guests, are, I've sort of, there's something self-selecting that they, they are the kind of people who still send postcards. So they're not a representative sample of the population, I don't think. I think on the whole, postcard sending is really, it's waning. But my guests, I suppose, almost by definition, are the kind of people who still like doing it. It's a funny mix of the public and the private too, isn't it? Because I guess whenever I've sent a postcard, I've, I've sometimes thought, I wonder how many people have actually read this on the way. I mean, it probably isn't of any interest to anyone, but that there is opportunities for people on the various stages of the process to, to have a bit of a read and see what you're up to. Well, I, I'm very lucky because my handwriting is so appalling <laughs> that even the recipient normally has trouble understanding the message, uh, let alone the postman. <laughs> but we, 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 one person told me a story. I think it was, it might have been Eamon Ford, the music journalist, was saying he lived in a very, grew up in a very small village. And it was him. I, I could be doing him a disservice. But when it, one of the guests mentioned actually writing a message on the card to the postman. So they'd be writing, the main message would be to their family back home. 
but it might say, you know, uh, hi, Gerald, hope you're getting on well. And, and, and that's the postman who they knew would read it. So um, they were convinced that this happened. I would always feel that postmen are probably too busy to do this, but I don't know. <laughs> in a future programme, we will definitely get a postman in. And find out how many of them they're read. Are there any guests that you've really, you'd really love to, to get on the show that you haven't been able quite to, to get on yet? Well, there's one guest who I think would be terrific, and that's Ringo Starr, because he's a Beatle. Yeah. But also, he published a book a few years ago of postcards that he had received from the other Beatles, particularly from the, from the breakup of the Beatles to when they became solo artists. And uh, I would find that very interesting to talk to Ringo about postcards. Tom Jackson of Podcast from the Past, the Postcard Podcast. Tom's on Twitter at Past Postcard, and you can find links to more episodes if you go to rnz.co.nz forward slash podcast hour now. <laughs> long, long ago, in the time before bagless vacuum cleaners and Marie Kondo, sweeping with a brush was the best way we had to tidy up the places we work, rest and play. To this day, some people still derive pleasure from the simple act of using a brush or a broom. And perhaps because sweeping is such an everyday, commonplace activity, it's got all these extra symbolic, even spiritual meanings attached to it in many cultures too. All this gets explored by host and poet Imtiaz Darker in a BBC doco called Sweeping the World. When I lived in Bombay... I would wake in the early morning to the sound of sweeping in the compound outside the window. It was a long, slow stroke that worked its way into the space between being half asleep and half awake. Sweeping is deeply ingrained in our Indian culture and traditions. The broomstick is associated with uh, two goddesses uh, in our mythology. Goddess Lakshmi, which is the goddess of wealth, so we consider that if we respect the broomstick, we res- give respect to Goddess Lakshmi and wealth comes inside our homes. Another goddess, Sheetla, which is the goddess who gives us good health. And this goddess is depicted with a broom in her hand. So when we worship the goddess, we are also worshipping the broom. <laughs> This woman is saying she is uneducated. Sweeping is all she can do to earn money so that her children will get an education. So even though goddesses may carry brooms, sweeping is considered a lowly task, crucial though it is. The Buddha, giving a disciple a path to enlightenment, said... Take this broom and recite as you sweep. Clean the dust, purify the mind. I'm taking the bark off of the handle and what you call a, a spoke shave. Bradley Nash is a broom squire from Tadley in Hampshire, England. Normally you would take the bark off because when you come to use the broom, if you haven't taken the bark off, where it, where it can be quite green, it can be very sort of dirty on your hands. Broom making has been in his family for at least 300 years. He's making a traditional besom broom. This tool is specially made 
um, for shaving handles down um, by a local blacksmith. That's that. American South, in the absence of legal recognition of marriage, couples in slavery jumped the broomstick. My name is Rachel. Rachel Godwin. I'm sweeping. I'm sweeping my house, cleaning the house, making the compound to be clean and everywhere to be neat. The length of the stroke is the scope of an arm, the arc from a hip, the rise and dip of her body as she moves the dirt of the living from courtyard to corner. Sometimes I sweep into the neighbor's house. If I see the, their company is not neat, I help them to sweep. In Nigeria, Rachel makes order out of chaos. She pushes away dust and dirt to the limits of space, to her borders. I love sweeping very much because it makes me happy and I like keeping everywhere neat. In the presence of God. Hallelujah, joy, come and praise his name forever in the presence of God. When I was seven years, I normally see my grandfather waking up early in the morning around 5.30 to 6. He would sweep the compound singing before he would go for morning prayers in the church. That has been my passion since when I was small. One day I will grow up and I will be like him. Right, so I'm just going to pick this object up. It's a bundle of grass stalks and it's held together with a piece of uh, fabric, a cotton fabric. Professor Dan Hicks is curator at the Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford, England. Laid out in front of us is a remarkable collection of antique brooms from all over the world. And this was collected in New Mexico in 1911 and was an object used as a broom to sweep the mud plaster floor of the house, while the other end was used to brush the hair. The grasses are picked in the summer, the late summer, and are held and kept in the house for making the new brooms as and when required. Wherever people settle, they find ways to use the materials taken from plants and animals around them to help with their sweeping. So this is a really remarkable object from Stremoy in the Faroe Isles. It's a handheld broom made from the wings of a puffin. This puffin wing broom could be a work of art. It's so spare and beautiful, still wing-shaped, a lovely thing to hold in the hand. And that reminds us really of the questions that anthropologists are interested in around skill, around knack. How do you use an object? 
also the traditions of attitudes about you know, what is dirty and what is clean, about you know, matter in place or out of place. When we think about the earliest tools, we often think about the stone axe. We think about the two million year history of solid objects, weapons, and those stone axes are extensions of the hand, which of course make us think about war and about hunting. But there are other tools, other objects that extend the hand. The broom is maybe a counter-history to the axe. So when I look at these objects, I think about their time depth as technologies, and I think about the challenges for us to understand the way in which ephemeral objects which are pulled together for the task at hand are hard to see in the archaeological record but are far from insignificant. This is where we put the head together. This is the birch head. This is where the technique is really. You, you gather the head up, you have to build the head rather than grab big handfuls. You have to roll it at the same time. Just gives the, the broom a better shape. My name is Mary Royal Agbenu Idoko. I'm a member of the Sanctuary Keepers Unit which is the arm of the church that cleans and keeps the church environment tidy. The major thing on my mind when I'm sweeping is the fact that I'm going to get blessed by God for doing it in his house. In church, we have more than 20 brooms, but at home, I think I have about four brooms. My mom will always keep a new broom each time, which is lighter and more pointed. In case you have mosquitoes, you can use that to fight mosquitoes as well. We made brooms from funds of palm tree. I was taught by my uncle how to do that. But my mom will always tell you, don't sweep at night, because if you sweep at night, you're sweeping the wealth of the family out of the house. It's a belief. Imtiaz Darka with some of Sweeping the World, produced by Loftus Media for the BBC World Service. And you can find more stories like that on the documentary podcast from the BBC. It looked like the perfect marriage. Dan was an Ivy League trained lawyer and academic who seemed to be on the fast track to success when he met Wendy, another bright and accomplished lawyer with aspirations to write a novel. The couple married, moved to Florida and had children. But then things started going wrong. Wendy moved out with the kids when Dan was away at a conference. They got divorced. Things turned nasty. Then one of them ended up dead, murdered at their own home. Over My Dead Body from Wandery puts journalist and writer Matthew Scher on the trail to find out what went wrong after the couple's breakup, starting with a husband, Dan. Dan blasted out an email to a bunch of his friends. He sent out an email about how devastated he was, how determined he was to get Winner back and make it work, how confounded he was by what was going on. And he concluded it with, love mightily while you can. 
And that was very Dan to turn it and then just wish the best for the rest of us. Tell us like what we should be doing and hope for the best. Abigail picked up the phone and called Dan. She led with a joke, a callback to the fact that he and Wendy had been the ones who'd set her up successfully with her husband. Dan, I've got the girl for you. Dan laughed. But as they talked, she could hear how broken he was. He he started to cry, and he said to me, what's going to happen with my boys? He said, their connection to Yiddishkeit, uh, to Judaism, is already so attenuated. What's going to become of them? And I had never, never heard Dan cry. It was really heartbreaking. For two weeks after she left him, Wendy didn't even tell Dan where she and the boys were living. So he would wait for Wendy at their kid's school, the morning drop-off, and afternoon pickup. I think that was one way of kind of seeing her, and he'd try to, like, you know, figure out when she was going to be there and be in the parking lot to try to you know, confront her. But not legal confrontation. Not yet. Because Dan was still holding on to the hope, however distant, that he could woo Wendy back. He could make the family whole again. It didn't take long for friends like the Coens to start choosing sides. So there was definitely a Team Wendy and a Team Danny, and we were on Team Danny, you know, from the beginning. And um, I mean, I I was, and I think you know, it's a function also of he lived on our street. Our kids went to school together, and we're roughly the same age. Hoping that you will I had one divorce from my first wife many years ago. And as you know, in these divorce issues, people take sides. And I decided by much as I liked Wendy, right? Because I still liked her, you know? I, 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 I mean, Danny had chosen me as one of his confidants. So I was not entitled, I thought, to go back to her and talk to her. I thought that that was not uh, consistent with my role as Danny's friend. For a guy who really liked to be in control, things had gotten a little out of control for him in, a, in an unpleasant way. Like, not that he was a c- control freak. I don't mean to suggest that he wasn't, but this was not the plan um, in any way. Wendy may have been relieved to escape a marriage that made her unhappy, but striking out on her own turned out to be not so simple. As it became increasingly clear to Dan that he was never getting Wendy back, his attitude changed. Yeah, I mean, I'd say that there were two phases to the post-divorce life for Danny. You know, the first phase was him, it was immediately after this Pearl Harbor moment where she dropped the papers on the bed, and he was committed to winning her back. And when it was clear that that wasn't happening, then he shifted into the second phase, which was fighting it like hell. Dan Markell became famous in the legal world, in part due to his unique theories on crime and punishment, which he often discussed on his blog. To Dan, a big part of why we punish criminals is to reinforce the unspoken pact we all have as a society. Dan was taking the side that, no, it's a positive good for offenders to to suffer uh, in the course of being punished because that's part of how uh, we write the scales. That's his law school colleague, Mark Spotswood. That's part of how we signal to them that, you know, we, you, what you did was wrong and you as a sort of equal moral member of society uh, deserve to be held to account for that. So, and I'm summarizing here, 
Dan's theories are building on one of the oldest ideas around, that justice is all about getting even. So once the gloves were off, once it was clear their marriage was never going back to how it was, how would Dan and Wendy get what they wanted? You live in, you know, the, the modern world where most of us are, you know, pretty safe and then completely out of the blue, someone walks into the garage and shoots them in the face. If anything, it's like, okay, a robbery, all right, drugs, okay. But a murder, like, I would never, like, ever be expecting that, ever. That's bullshit, man. You know exactly what I'm talking about. We know what the is going on. Find out who the it is. That's all I'm asking you. Some of episode one, The Husband from Over My Dead Body from Wandery, presented by Matthew Scher. Thanks for listening to the podcast hour from RNZ. If you're finding it helpful to find new stuff to listen to, then please do consider rating or reviewing us with as many stars as you can manage wherever you get your podcasts from and tell your friends and family about us too. And if you're writing a review, then do let us know what you like about the show or how it could be improved. So if you'd like to hear longer clips, more interviews with the people making the shows that we feature, and if four shows is about the right number to highlight each week, that kind of stuff, it would be really helpful to know. Thanks a lot. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.